This morning, we will be in Revelation chapter 21. So let me invite you to turn there. Revelation chapter 21. How is it that you imagine heaven? What would your perfect heaven look like? Would we have seasons? Would there be any uh, sorts of conflict or, or work? Try to picture that in your mind for a moment, moment and then think how central God would be to your view of heaven. The greatest part about heaven is not the treasures that will be there. The streets of gold, the gates made of pearl, the, the walls that are made of all these precious stones. It won't be the great mansions that will make heaven great. The greatest part about heaven is that God will be there. And that we will have unhindered fellowship with Him. That He will live among us unlike He has in any time in our life. He will live fully among us. His glory will be among us. You see, God has been working since the time of the fall, since the time that man sinned, to to dwell among His people. He's desired to have a relationship with His people to dwell among them so that He can be their God and that we will be His people. But the problem is that sin has obstructed that perfect relationship that we should be able to have with God and that God desires to have with us. And so before God can dwell with us, He first has to do away with sin and all of its consequences. And that will be the focus of our study this morning in chapter 21 the verses that we will consider are verses 1 through 8. So let me read those for us. Revelation 21, verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. God will dwell among His people unhindered by sin and its consequences. 
we get a glimpse into this new heaven and new earth, this we could call it a new universe, perhaps a simpler way of, of saying it, and so that's going to be the focus of this passage, the, need, the, the, the new universe that God is going to provide for those who are His, that is, His children. And so we see the need for this new universe at the end of verse 1. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. The earth, at this point in, in the future, will have been emptied of all of its creatures. The believing will have been taken up to heaven. This is following the millennial kingdom, the 1,000-year reign of Christ. All of the, the dead we saw last week will be raised. That is, the unbelieving dead, they'll be raised from the dead to be judged at the great white throne judgment. And this will include, apparently, all of the demons as well. And so the earth will be empty of all of its people, of all of its persons. And so this earth is now able to pass away. It's done what it was designed to do. Remember, the problem with the old earth was not just that it was full of evil people, or full of evil creatures, demons, and so on. It wasn't that it was just governed by Satan. The problem with the new earth was that it was actually, or the old earth, excuse me, the earth that we're living on now, the problem with it is that it was cursed. In addition to all those things, it had a curse on it. Listen to Romans 8.22. The whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Paul there seems to be talking about more than people. He's saying all of God's creation groans and suffers because there's this curse that has come upon it because of Adam's sin. So we have a transition here between the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ and the eternal reign of the Godhead. We have a transition from Christ's kingdom where He is the mediator to the eternal kingdom of the triune God. You see, these two kingdoms have been separate. God is on His throne now, and He has been through eternity past, and has been ruling all of the universe. But then there's this other kingdom that's here on the earth that's, that's in a sense, distant from what God's doing. It's not all that God plans to do. In other words, um, it, it's uh, it's going on, but but God has a greater desire for what's going to happen in the future universe that He's going to provide. And even during the millennial kingdom, there is sin that still exists on the earth because you have some people who, who survive the, the tribulation who are believers, but then they give birth to babies, and babies are unbelievers. And some of them don't turn to Christ, and so there's still sin. And, uh, and, and during this time, the... At the end of this time, these two kingdoms will be unified, you could say, where Christ's kingdom and God's kingdom come together in one kingdom, which is known as the eternal kingdom, the kingdom that will last forever. They will be inseparable. The triune God will reign as king. So, so now this, this old earth, this old universe, that's what it's talking about when it's talking about the heaven and earth. It's talking about probably the sky there. So just think universe when you think of new heaven and new earth uh, or old heaven and old earth, same thing. 
the old universe compared to the new universe. So what's so special about this new universe? We're going to see several things of why this universe is beautiful, but the first reason that it is beautiful is found in verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Um, the first reason that it's beautiful is because it is new. Have you ever seen anything that's brand new that wasn't beautiful? Maybe there's some some things made overseas or something that, uh, that that's not beautiful that's new. But generally speaking, that which is new is beautiful. So now we, we need to understand a little bit more about the nature of this new universe. If God is going to make a new heaven and a new earth, is He going to create it or is He going to take some substance of the old universe and turn it into this new universe? Now at first read, it sounds like it's completely new. That is, He completely does away with the old universe and then starts with a brand new one. But turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 because I think we have a similar uh, analogy, I guess we could say, going on here in the human being. And very similar language to what John uses here in, in Revelation chapter 21. Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to talk about a person. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things, notice these words, passed away. Behold, new things have come. So, when you came to Christ, were you as a person completely annihilated and God started over completely? Is that how it worked with your person? God started to transform you, not just spiritually, but in your body as well. And the reason I say that is because the spiritual change that takes place in you should affect a change in your body as well. You stop taking in things that will harm you. You stop doing things that you're not supposed to do. You do things that, that are pleasing to God. And so that's why I speak of, of human beings as a whole person. Sometimes we think about the material and the immaterial, but really those things are, are hard to separate. The only time they are separated really is at death. So when Christ makes uh, this new creature, is, he, is God starting over from nothing? I think the answer is no. And so I would suggest to you that in Revelation chapter 21, what's taking place here is that God is actually transforming the old universe. Now, certainly, we've already seen that the old universe will be burned up, that it will be destroyed by fire. Um, but there has to be something, or it seems as if there's something that's still connected uh, or still left with this old universe that will be, we could say, the seed for the new universe. The seed that comes uh, from the plant is now planted into the ground and and provides for us this new plant. So it's the same sort of constitution, um, but the old, the old universe that was cursed is now unrecognizable and simply used as a way to, to bring on this new, renewed universe in a fresh and glorious way. Um, I, I wouldn't go to the, uh, to the stake with that, with that understanding of the Scripture. That's just based on 
on some theologians that I've read, and it seems to make sense to me that it's connected to 2 Corinthians 5, that's the transformation of the old. But whatever the case is, it will be it will be fresh, it will be new, it will be joyful, it will be good. Um, so the first reason that this universe will be good is because it is new. Secondly, find in verse um, towards the end of verse one that there, that it will be permanent or incorruptible. Notice the end of verse one. It says there is no longer any sea. We'll see lots of uh, differences between the old universe and the new universe when we get to verse four and further next week when we look at the end of chapter twenty-one. But John gives us the first difference between the old universe and the new universe. And the first difference is that there's no longer any sea. Now, this doesn't mean that there's no more water connected to any land because we will find that there is a river. Uh, In fact, we read it this morning that there will be a spring of water that we will be drinking from. Um, But the idea here is that there's no more sea, no more ocean in this new universe. And the reason for that is because the sea was symbolic of death. Look up to chapter 20, verse 13. And and notice the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. So it seems as if the sea, death, and Hades are all used kind of as synonymous things, as things that are similar, at least similar things that refer to the place of the dead. So in this new universe, there will no longer be any sea. And the the importance of this, the significance of this, is that this place will be permanent. That those who have entrance into this new universe will be permanent. They will be incorruptible because there's no longer anything that brings death. We'll see that clearly here when we get to verse 4. Because death has been defeated. The last enemy for Christ to destroy was death. And He did that initially at the cross, but finally at the great white throne judgment when death and Hades were thrown into hell, into the lake of fire, excuse me. That's the last enemy to be defeated. So in this new universe, there will be no death. It will be permanent. The third reason that it's beautiful found in verse 2, and that is that it, it it will be the dwelling place of the new Jerusalem. Or we could say it would be the home of the new Jerusalem. Now we'll, we'll find out a lot more about this new Jerusalem next week. This is something... This New Jerusalem and new universe are not synonymous. Okay, New Jerusalem is a city within this new universe. However God makes this new universe... New Jerusalem will be one large city, the largest city, the capital city of the new universe. And so we'll spend a lot of time looking at it next week, its features, what it looks like, who's there, and so on. But for now, you should understand that, that all believers will not live in the new Jerusalem. This new Jerusalem is designed for a specific group of people. Look up. Uh, look down to chapter 21, verse 24. This is a little, little uh, preview of what we're going to look at next week. Speaking of the new Jerusalem, John writes, "...the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. 
And and he goes on. They will bring their glory and their honor into the city. So what's implied there is that the nations, the kings of the earth, will come into the city as if they don't live there. That they have other places to live. Now this will be the central place to be on the earth because it, we'll see next week that's where God resides. Uh, his presence is. But, but, um, but ultimately these other nations and kings will come to it. Now when I'm talking about nations and kings, don't think unbelievers. Remember, death has been destroyed. Unbelievers are all in hell, all in the eternal lake of fire. This is talking about believing nations, those who are not a part of, and I would say specifically, those who are not a part of the church. That is, the church saints will be the primary residents of the New Jerusalem. Now people will be able to come in and go out. We're going to see next week that the gates are always left open. People will come in and go out, worship God there, serve Him, do business, all sorts of things. But primarily, this new Jerusalem is designed for believers. And the reason I know that is because of verse 2 and verse 9. Look at verse 2 of chapter 21. I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. How else, how else has that term bride been used in the book of Revelation? It referred to the bride. We've also seen the bride used as the church, the bride of Christ, the wedding supper, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the Lamb marries his bride, the church. Look down to verse 9. Notice what is going on here. The, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bulls full of seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. You know what he shows him? Verses 10 through 27, he shows them the New Jerusalem. So what he's saying here is, let me show you the home of the Lamb. This is the New Jerusalem. This is where they will live. This is the home of the Bride of Christ. And so apparently believers during the church age will have a special place, not just during the kingdom, but throughout all of eternity. Not that Abraham and all the saints of old and the tribulation saints will not get to share in all the joys of, of the, the eternal life with God. They will. But there will be, just like in the kingdom, there will be a hierarchy, there will be a special place for the people who have been saved during the church age. And so this bride is adorned for her husband. This new Jerusalem will be beautiful. We're going to get into its details next week, and I can't wait to, to study that with you. But this will be made perfect for this new universe. And so this new Jer Jerusalem will come down out of heaven, it says, and it will come and be at the center of what God is doing on this new, in this new universe. Now it sounds like it sounds like this new Jerusalem has already existed. Notice that it comes down in verse two out of heaven. It sounds as if it was already there in some way. Um, it could be referring to these dwelling places that Christ had promised that I'm going to prepare a place for you. It could be that. Or it could be that God is simply talking about His, His dwelling place uh, coming now down to earth. But I, 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 it's hard to know exactly which one is correct, but I follow my theology professor, Dr. McCune, who takes it as a new, the New Jerusalem being already there in heaven, being the home of of the bride of Christ. This place that God has made, that Christ has made for His bride, 
And it, it has been there during the millennium. Okay, we think of the millennium as believers will be reigning on thrones, and, and that will be true. But their actual home will be in this new Jerusalem that is somehow suspended over the millennial kingdom. And they will be able to be transported, transported back and forth between the new Jerusalem, their home, and the millennial kingdom down on the earth where they will be judges and they will be ruling with Christ their groom. And so this at the beginning of the eternal kingdom, this new Jerusalem that apparently was suspended over the millennial kingdom now will come down and be on the earth. It will be the home of God and His church saints primarily, but it will also be a great place of worship uh, for all people all believers of all time. So the third reason that this new new universe is beautiful is because it contains the new Jerusalem, the new home of God and His believing church. fourth reason that it's beautiful is because, and this is the most important, that God is there. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. The most intriguing part about heaven, the best part about this new eternity, this this new universe, this new kingdom, excuse me, is that God will be there. This voice that is speaking says, I heard a loud voice coming from the throne. We have seen God speaking from His throne uh, in chapters 4 and and following. We've noted that being God sitting on His throne. And uh, and that typically is the case. But in verses 11 through 15 of chapter 20, we saw Jesus being the one sitting on the throne. That all the judgment has been handed over to the Son. He is the one that was going to be the judge. So He's sitting on the throne. Obviously, God still has a throne, but God, Jesus is sitting on His throne. So that likely is who is talking here. But the point of the verse is not who is talking, but, but that the tabernacle of God, that the dwelling place of God is now going to be among men. Notice three times in this verse it says that God will be among them. It says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among them, and He will dwell among them. In the last part of the verse, And God Himself will be among them. See, believers have already seen Christ face to face. And that will be a great day when we get to see Christ face to face and when we get to worship Him and enjoy His presence for those thousand years. But that will not, uh, during that time, we'll not be able to see God the Father face to face. For no one has seen God the Father and lived. And lived. That will not take place until look at chapter 22, verse 3. There will no longer be any curse. This is talking about this new eternal kingdom, final eternal kingdom. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And His bondservants will serve Him, and they will see His face. His name will be on their foreheads. We'll sp- spend a lot of time talking about God's presence next week, and so I'll, I'll reserve uh, more comment for, for then. But the fourth reason, the most important for why this new universe is beautiful is because God is there. The fifth reason in verses 4 through 7, fifth and final reason for its beauty is that it provides a new way of life. A new way of life. Now sometimes it's hard for us to imagine something that we've never seen. If someone 
somehow was able to be transported from the future and try to tell us about some uh, piece of equipment or some flying machine, personal flying machine. It would be hard for us to understand exactly what they're talking about. So the best way, I think, for us to understand what what is going to be here in this new universe is to think about what's not going to be there. And, and that's what the, uh, John is able to see. He's able to see what not what is not there. That is the opposite of what will be there. First of all, verse 4, He will wipe away their tears. Now, we have been taught that there are no tears in heaven, that, that there is no, no uh, tears at all, but it sounds like that God is actually wiping them away. So maybe that implies that there are tears, but notice at the end of the verse, says uh, towards the end of the verse, there will no longer be any mourning or crying. So, so that's true. There are there will not be any tears. The idea that God is wiping away their tears is that before we would, you know, we would be there would be things to be sad about. There would be things for us to be distraught about, but but no longer in this new universe there will be no more tears. There will be no more crying. Next verse four, there will be no more death. The resurrection of Christ is confirmation that, that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that all who died with Christ will also live, will be resurrected with Christ to reign with Him, to live with Him. So there will be no more death as, as we noted earlier with the sea being gone. No more ocean which represents a symbolic of death. Next, in verse 4, there's no more mourning and no more crying. What do we normally mourn or cry about? We normally mourn or cry about the things that we lose. Right? The loss of someone. The loss of a job. The loss of health. The loss of money. And here's what's going to be great about the new universe. There will be no more losses. There'll never be a time when we were expecting to have something and we were disappointed. There'll be no more losses, no more mourning, nothing to cry about, and then no more pain. Because the first things have passed away. You see, this is a reversal of the curse that came upon not only mankind, but all of creation. The groaning that was taking place during creation is no more because the first things are passed away. And behold, all things have become new. All these things, tears, death, mourning, crying, and pain, are a result of sin. And nothing sinful can ever come from this new universe. Look at verse 27, the last verse of chapter 21. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's nothing sinful here. There's nothing sinful in this new universe. And so Christ reminds John that He is making all things new. Notice verse uh, 5, because He also notes, He reminds John to keep writing. Verse 5 reads, And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Probably John has been overwhelmed by what he has seen. 
and has forgot to has forgotten to write down what he's supposed to be writing down for us, for the benefit of his readers. And so Christ has to remind him, you need to write this down, John. I know this is big, but write this down so people can can reflect on this glory of this new universe. So it's this new universe is a new way of life. So it's out with the old. No more tears, pain, sorrow, mourning, crying, death. It's out with the old and in with the new, verses 6 and 7. We have confidence that it will happen. In fact, Jesus speaks about it as if it's already done. Then He said to me, It is done. It is done. God has made all things new. He speaks in the present tense as if it has already occurred, even though it's still future. That is, it's so sure that it's going to happen that I can speak of it as if it has already happened. It is done. And the assurance that it will happen is that we have the Alpha and Omega behind all of it. That is, the One who is the beginning and the end. The Infinite One is in control of it all. And because of it, we will have complete satisfaction. The end of verse 6 says, I will give to the One who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. Apparently, there will be a river that flows from the throne of God and the Lamb, according to chapter 22, verse 1. And this river will provide eternal life to those who drink it. And only those who enter into this new universe will be able to drink it. John will later give an invitation to partake of this water, much like Jesus would do with the women at the well. Would you like to have a water of which you will never thirst? Would you like to take a drink of that? She says, tell me where this water is. I would love to do that. Of course, she didn't understand that he was talking about eternal life. So we have this invitation for us not to wait until then, but to take a taste of this eternal water. Have this thirst quenched, not just in the life to come, but now. Look at twenty-two, chapter 22, verse 17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. John pulls back from his vision here in chapter 22, verse 17, and gives an offer now to all who are reading to to take a taste of this water now. To to take part in in this, this life which is eternal by taking part of Jesus Christ. By trusting in Him. So this new this new universe will be beautiful. It will be great. It will be. Uh, it's hard for us to fathom what it will be like, but it will be unlike anything we have ever seen or experienced. So how do we become a part? How do we become citizens of this new universe? And John tells us in verses seven and eight. He tells us how to get there. And he, he in verse seven he says do this. In verse eight he says don't do that. Okay, so first, verse 7, do this, overcome. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. John says, you want to be a part of this new universe? Specifically, you church-age believer or church-age people, you want to be a part of this new universe? Then come, overcome. 
Now, this should, this should ring in our head, this word overcome, because we've seen this word before. In chapters 2 and 3, John is saying, let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, and then he tells all the benefits of he who overcomes. Chapter 2, verse 7, you will receive the tree of life. Chapter 2, verse 11, you will not be hurt by the second death. Chapter 2, verse 17, if you overcome, you will receive the hidden manna and a white stone. Chapter 2, verse 26, you will receive authority to rule as judges. Chapter 3, verse 5, you will receive white garments. Chapter 3, verse 12, you will, you will be a pillar in the temple of God. Chapter 3, verse 21, you will sit with Christ on thrones. If you overcome... And so John is saying here, now towards the end of his writing, overcome. Those who overcome, verse 7 says, will receive pure fellowship with God. I will be His God and He will be my Son. Paul tells us how we can be overcomers. John, in fact, does this in 1 John talks about purging sin and pursuing holiness. Romans 8.27 says, ultimately, we can be more than conquerors. We can be more than overcomers. How? Through Him who loved us. You want to be an overcomer? You want to be a part of this new universe? You want to be a citizen of this new Jerusalem? And you have to overcome. And in order to overcome, you need to be a part of Jesus Christ. You need to be in Christ. That means you need to trust in Him. You need to have what He's done applied to your account and your sin applied to His account. That happens through genuine faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. Believing that He alone is the one who can take your place. So John gives two ways to show how we can get there. How we can be members, citizens of this kingdom, this eternal kingdom. And the first is that we overcome. That's the positive way to look at it. The negative way to look at it is found in verse 8. He says, don't do this. Don't act like this. Don't practice these things. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. One of the things that that uh, John said, or actually that Jesus said to the churches in chapter two, verse eleven, was to him that overcomes, they will not be hurt by the second death. Here's what John's saying: If you're practicing these things, verse eight, then you will be a part of the second death. All the people who act in this way, who practice continually practice this, and the reason I say that. It's because of chapter 21, verse 27. Notice the language here in verse 27. And nothing unclean and no one who practices. So what John is not talking about is the person who, in chapter 21, verse 8, who has ever been cowardly one time or multiple times. The person who has had a, a time when they were unbelieving or when they murdered one person or when they were immoral one time or when they... Participated in black arts. Those are all bad things and we shouldn't do them. But what John is saying is, if you do that one time, you're going to take part of the second death. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, according to verse 27, those who 
practice those things. And if you look back to his first epistle, 1 John, that's the way he talks about those who are not in God, those who do not know God, as those who continually practice those things. So if you're continually practicing immorality, then you should have no assurance of your salvation. If you are continually practicing murder and unbelief and sorcery and idolatry and all these things, you should have no assurance of your salvation because those types of people who continually practice those things, who are never turning from those things, according to John, will have their part in the lake of fire. This is the second death. So, his main point here is we could sum it up by saying, in order to be a part of this eternal kingdom, to be a citizen of this eternal kingdom, we need to avoid judgment. Because all those people will receive judgment, those practicers of those wicked things. So how do we avoid judgment? Turn to John chapter 5 with me. And this is a verse that if you struggle with um, confidence in your own salvation, whether Christ has saved you, this is a verse you should know. This is a verse you should turn to often and reflect on. In order to avoid judgment, it's as simple as believing in Jesus Christ. John 5, verse 24. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. How do we avoid judgment? How do we avoid missing out on this eternal kingdom? The answer in in John 5:24 is to hear God's word and believe in the God who sent the Messiah Jesus Christ. The promise is that we will have eternal life. Do you believe that God's promise is real here that Jesus promised for you is real? That's all it is. Believing in Jesus Christ. He takes your place. He stands in your place. He is your substitute. At the center of our thoughts about heaven should not be streets of gold primarily. should not be mansions or gates made of pearl. Those will all be there. But at the center of our thoughts about heaven, about the new universe, should be our relationship with God. That is, that we will be able to enjoy unhindered fellowship with God the Father. Unmarred by our own sin, unimpeded by the the corruption of this world, we'll no longer have to believe in faith. We will see everything. It, It will be belief through sight. We will be able to see God's face. I don't know the specific spiritual battle that you're going through right now. But you may feel like giving up. But I would encourage you to continue on. Keep fighting. The motivation to continue on should come from God's future blessing that He has promised you. It should also come from what He has done for you in the past. Yes. And that He is currently working in you. But but also you should look forward to the future and what God has or God will do for you. 
Let me leave you with a hymn that um, that is encouraging in light of what God will do for you, in light of your current struggles, and then also with the word from our Lord. First, a hymn. Life's day will soon be o'er. That is over all storms forever past. We'll cross the great divide to glory safe at last. We'll share the joys of heaven, a harp, a home, a crown. The tempter will be banished. We'll lay our, our burden down. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of His dear face, all sorrows will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. If you're challenged, if you're, if you're frustrated by the struggles that you face now, recognize that it, it will be worth it all when you get to glory, when you see Christ. Listen to the words of our Lord. His encouragement to us, in Mark chapter 10, verses 29-30, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the Gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions in the age to come eternal life. To follow Christ, you have to give things up, don't you? You have to break relationships in many cases. And if you are distraught over those relationships, over those losses that you've had to face because of following Christ, what Christ is saying is, I'm going to give you a hundredfold. It's going to be worth it. When you get there, you'll have a far better family, a much closer family. And the houses that you lost, the value, the wealth that you could have had if you didn't follow me, I'm going to make up for it. And you're going to you're going to enjoy it. The persecutions that you've had to face, that will be replaced with eternal life. It will be worth it all. Don't give up. Keep fighting. It's great. Our Father, we recognize that we are frail and we are uh, prone to to want to give in when when things get tough. And things do get tough in this world. We we groan with the rest of creation for this new heaven and new earth, for this curse to be done away with. Very tempting to to want to give in and, and have final rest now. But we know that. We cannot enjoy the spoils fully yet until the battle is over. So please help us to to look forward to that day when the battle is over, when the victory is won. It has been won, certainly, through Jesus' death. But finally, it won't be won until the end of the kingdom, the great white throne judgment. So we need to await that time. We await trusting that You know what's best. And these trials that hurt, these trials that, that, that scar and bring pain and sorrow and crying and mourning and death, we trust are for Your glory and for our good. 
to make us more like our Savior whom we love and whom we would lay our life down for and whom we want to lay our life for down for now in the way that we live. Help us to do that, we pray. Thank You for providing a future home for us. Thank You for providing a special place where we will be able to enjoy Your presence unhindered by the sins and the corruption of this world by Satan and his demons. Thankful that all those things will be done away with and that we will be left to enjoy Your presence forevermore and the joy that it is, that is in knowing other people who follow You and the joy of the wealth that, that will come to those who continue on till the end. Help us to keep fighting. Give us the strength to obey, to purge sin, to, to not be practicers of these sins that were listed as well as all the other vices that are listed throughout the New Testament. Help us not to be practicers of those things. We certainly slip into those things on occasion, but we don't want to. And so, turn us from there. Turn us on to a path towards righteousness. Help us to love Your law, Your Word. To meditate on it day and night and, and to, to take joy in following it and, and beating our bodies and our minds into submission spiritually. Even though it it um, seems to be unprofitable at times, help us to see that, that with it we will receive an imperishable wreath, eternal life, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the, the work of Jesus Christ within us. We need Your help in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.